Part two of Chapter sixteen of the Story of the Atlantic Telegraph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph by Henry M. Field. Chapter sixteen. Victory at last. Part two. Saturday evening, July fourteenth. General Cialdini is moving upon Rovigo with an army of one hundred thousand men and two hundred guns. The Austrians have evacuated the whole country between the Mincio and Adige. A day or two later, Cialdini has occupied Padua, 23 miles from Venice, on the railway connecting that city with the quadrilateral, and the Austrians are shut up in Venice. Tuesday, 17th. Prussians had successful engagement before Olmutz yesterday. Captured six guns. Further fighting expected today. Austrians withdrawing from Moldovia toward Vienna. Conflict between Prussians and Federals. Prussians completely victorious. Federals evacuating Frankfurt and Prussians marching there. Thursday, 19th. Prussians repeating victories and gaining adhesions from small states. The main army within 50 miles of Vienna have cut the railway to Vienna. Austrian army between Prussians and Vienna under Archduke, 160,000 men. Money and archives removed from Vienna to Comorn. 20th. Frankfurt occupied by the Prussians who are marching on Vienna. Yesterday, Italian fleet, consisting of ironclad vessels and several steamers, Open attack on island of Lissa, on the coast of Dalmatia. Results not known. The next day it is reported thus. Several naval engagement off Lissa. Austrians claimed the victory. Sunk one Italian ironclad, run down another, blew up a third. July 21st. Prussians crossed river. Marched near Holitzon, Hungary. Austria accepted proposal of armistice. Prussia will be abstained from hostilities for five days, during which Austria will have to notify acceptance of preliminaries. A long letter published from the King of Prussia to the Queen, giving account of Battle of Konitzgratz. The interest excited by such news may be imagined, coming while the events were yet fresh. Twice a day the bulletin set up on the deck, and was surrounded by an eager crowd, reading what had transpired on the continent but a few hours before. Nor was the intelligence confined to the Great Eastern. By an arrangement of signals, more complete than ever was used in a squadron before, the news was telegraphed to the convoy. All the ships had been furnished with experienced signalmen by the Admiralty. The system adopted was that known as Columns Flash Signals, by which, even in the darkest night, messages could easily be flashed to a distance of several miles. Thus all the ships were supplied with news twice a day, and the great military events in Europe were discussed in every cabin as eagerly as in the clubs of London. Again, Dean's diary reports, Sunday, July 22nd. Still success to record. A bright, clear day with a fresh and invigorating breeze from the northwest. Cable going out with an unerring smoothness at the rate of six miles an hour. There has been great improvement in the insulation. This remarkable improvement is attributable to the greatly decreased temperature of and pressure on the cable in the sea. This is a very satisfactory result to Mr. Billoughby Smith. Signals, too, come every hour more distinctly. This morning the breeze freshened. We are now about thirty miles to the southward of the place where the cable parted on the 2nd of August, 1865, having then paid out 1,213 miles. Captain Anderson read divine service in the dining saloon. Monday. Between 6 and 7 p.m. yesterday, we passed over the deepest part of our course. There was no additional strain on the dynamometer, which indicated from 10 to 1,400, the cable going out with its accustomed regularity. The wind still fresh from the northwest. During the night it went round to the southwest, and this morning there is a long roll from the southward. At forty-six minutes past eleven a.m., 
Mr. Cyrus Field sent a message to Valentia, requesting Mr. Glass to obtain the latest news from Egypt, India, and China, and other distant countries, so that on our arrival at Hart's Content, we shall be able to transmit it to the principal cities of the United States. In just eight minutes he had a reply in these words, Your message received, and is in London by this. Outside the telegraph room there is a placard put up, on which it posted the news shortly after its arrival, and groups of the crew may be seen reading it. Just as we see a crowd at a newspaper office in London, Mr. Dudley, the artist, has made a very spirited sketch of Jack reading the morning news, for he is supplied with the latest intelligence from the seat of war twice a day. Footnote B. Mr. Dudley made a number of sketches for Mr. Field, with several large paintings, which have furnished the illustrations for this volume. End footnote. How he will grumble when he gets ashore! He is not going to pay a pound for word for news, but his newspaper will supply it to him, and he does not know or care what it costs. But what a sum has been spent in Atlantic telegraphs! It cannot now fall short of two million and a half of pounds, or over twelve millions of dollars. More millions will be found if it shall be practically proved that America can permanently talk to England, and through her to the Eastern Hemisphere, and England to America by this ocean wire. At a quarter to twelve today, but two hundred and fifty miles of cable remain to be paid out of the fore tank. Tomorrow night we hope to see it empty, then for a small supply from the main tank, and then, but hopeful though we are, let us not anticipate. Tuesday. Breakfast at eight, lunch at one, dinner at six, tea at eight, five hundred and two souls who live on board this huge ship following their prescribed occupations. Cable going out merrily. Electrical tests and signals perfect, and this is the history of what has taken place from noon yesterday to noon today. May we have three days more of such delightful monotony. It rained very hard during yesterday evening, and as we approach the banks of Newfoundland, we get thick and hazy weather. The latter part of the voyage did not fulfill, in all respects, the promise of the first. The bright skies were gone, and instead perpetual fog hung over the water, while often the clouds poured down their floods. Thus the diary continues. Wednesday. Fog and thick rain just the weather to expect on approaching the banks of Newfoundland. The convoy keep their position, and though sometimes the fog hides the ships from our view, yet we know where they are by their signal whistles, two from the Terrible, three from the Medway, and four from the Albany, which are replied to by the prolonged single shriek from our whistle. At forty-two minutes past one, Greenwich time, ship's time forty-five minutes past ten p.m. last night, the fore tank being nearly empty, preparations were made for passing the bight of the cable into the main tank. At fifty minutes past two, all the jockey wheels of the paying out machinery were up, and the brakes released. Twenty-three minutes past two, the bight was passed steadily and cautiously by the cable hands outside of the trough to the main tank, and at thirty-five minutes past two, the splice went over the stern in 1,542.8 fathoms. By arrangement with Sir James Hope, the admiral of the North American station, who has received instructions from the Admiralty to give the present expedition every assistance in his power, a frigate or sloop will be placed in longitude forty-eight degrees, twenty-eight minutes, fifty-two seconds, which is just thirty miles from the entrance of Trinity Bay, and sixty from heart's content. She will probably hang on by a kedge in that position, which shows the fair way right up the bay, and if it be clear, we ought to see her about daybreak on Friday morning. The fog was very thick this morning, but occasionally lifts. As long as the wind is from southwest, we cannot expect clear weather. As the week drew on, it was evident that they were approaching the end of their voyage. By Thursday they had passed the great depths of the Atlantic, and were off soundings. Besides their daily observations, there were many signs, well known to mariners, that they were near the coast. 
They were the sea birds, and they could almost snuff the smell of the land, such as once greeted the sharp senses of Columbus, and made him sure that he was floating to some undiscovered shore. Captain Anderson had timed his departure so that he should approach the American coast at the full moon, but for the last two or three nights, as the round oar rose behind them, banks of cloud hung so heavily upon the water that the moonlight only gleamed faintly through the vaporous air, and the fleet seemed like the phantom ships of the ancient mariner, drifting on through fog and mist. Thursday. All day yesterday was as thick as mustard. We have had now forty-eight hours of fog. Though it lifted a little this morning at five a.m., it still looks like more of it. Captain Anderson signaled to the Albany at fifteen minutes past ten last night to start at daybreak and proceed to discover the station ship and report us at hand. Should she fail to find her, then to try and make the land and guide us up to Trinity Bay. Another signal was sent at half-past twelve to the effect that the Terrible and Medway will be sent ahead to meet the Albany and establish a line to lead us in even with a fog. The Albany started at half-past three. At forty-five minutes past four, Greenwich time, the cable engineer in charge took one weight off each break of the paying-out machinery. At forty minutes past seven, all weights taken off, the assumed depth being three hundred fathoms, the indicated strain on the dynamometer gradually decreasing. Speed of ship five knots. We are going to try and pick up the cable of 1865 in 2,500 fathoms, and we mean to succeed too. Therefore, should the cable we are now paying out part, it can be understood how easy it will be to raise it from a depth of 300 fathoms. At 55 minutes past 8, we signaled to the Terrible to sound and received a reply, 160 fathoms. At half past 11, we informed her that when at the buoy off heart's content, she should have a paddle-box boat and two cutters ready to be alongside immediately, for holding the bite of the cable, doing the splice and laying the shore end. The Medway was told at the same time to prepare two five-inch ropes and two large mushroom anchors, with 50 fathoms of chain, for anchoring during the splice in 170 fathoms of water, and we intimated to her that when in sight of Trinity Bay, we should signal for two boats to take hands on board her for shore end. News of today, telegram from Mr. Glass, and reply to one from Mr. Canning. I congratulate you all most sincerely on your arrival in 130 fathoms. I hope nothing will interfere to mar the hitherto brilliant success, and that the cable will be landed tomorrow. As the voyage is about to end, we give the distance run from day to day, which show a remarkable uniformity for progress. Saturday, 14th. Distance run, 108. Cable paid out, 115. Sunday, 15th. Distance run, 128. Cable paid out, 139. Monday, 16th. Distance run, 115. Cable paid out, 137. Tuesday, 17th. Distance run, 117. Cable paid out, 138. Wednesday, 18th. Distance run, 104. Cable paid out, 125. Thursday, 19th. Distance run, 112. Cable paid out, 129. Friday, 20th. Distance run, 117. Cable paid out, 127. Saturday, 21st. Distance run, 121. Cable paid out, 136. Sunday, 22nd. Distance run, 123. Cable paid out, 133. Monday, 23rd. Distance run, 121. Cable paid out, 138. Tuesday, 24th. Distance run, 120. Cable paid out, 135. Wednesday, 25th. Distance run, 119. Cable paid out, 130. Thursday, 26th. Distance run, 128. Cable paid out, 134. Friday, 27th. 
distance run, 100, cable paid out, 104. From this it appears that the speed of the ship was exactly according to the running time fixed before she left England. On the last voyage it was thought that she had once or twice run too fast, and thus exposed the cable to danger. It was therefore decided to go slowly but surely. Holding her back to this moderate pace, her average speed from the time the spice was made till they saw land was a little less than five nautical miles an hour, while the cable was paid out at an average of not quite five and a half miles. Thus the total slack was about eleven percent, showing that the cable was laid almost in a straight line, allowing for the swells and hollows in the bottom of the sea. Friday, July 27th. Shortly after 2 p.m. yesterday, two ships, which were soon made out to be steamers, were seen to the westward, and the Terrible, steaming on ahead, in about an hour, signaled to us that HMS Niger was one of them, accompanied by the Albany. The Niger, Captain Bruce, sent a boat to the Terrible as soon as he came up with her. The Albany shortly afterward took up her position on a starboard quarter, and signaled that she spoke the Niger at noon, bearing east by north, and that the Lily was anchored at the station in the entrance of Trinity Bay, as arranged with the Admiral. The Albany also reported that she had passed an iceberg about sixty feet high. At twenty minutes after four p.m., the Niger came on our port side, quite close, and Captain Bruce, sending the crew to the rigging and manning the yards, gave us three cheers which were heartily returned by the Great Eastern. She then steamed ahead toward Trinity Bay. The Albany was signaled to go on immediately to heart's content, clear the northeast side of the harbor of shipping, and place a boat with a flagged flag for Captain Anderson to steer to, for anchorage. Just before dinner we saw on the southern horizon, distant about ten miles, an iceberg, probably the one which the Albany met with. It was apparently about fifty or sixty feet in height. The fog came on very thick about eight p.m., and between that and ten we were constantly exchanging guns and burning blue lights with the Terrible, which, with the Niger, went in search of the Lily station ship. The Terrible being signaled to come up and take her position, informed us they had made the Lily out, and that she bore them about east-northeast, distant four miles. Later in the night, Captain Coverall said that if Captain Anderson would stop the Great Eastern, he would send the surveyor, Mr. Robinson, R.N., who came out in the Niger, on board of us, and about three the engines were slowed, and the Terrible shortly afterwards came alongside with that officer. Catalina Light, at the entrance of Trinity Bay, had been made out three hours before this, and the loom of the coast had also been seen. Fog still prevailing. According to Mr. Robinson's account, if they got one clear day in seven at the entrance of Trinity Bay, they considered themselves fortunate. Here we are now, 6 a.m., within ten miles of heart's content, and we can scarcely see more than a ship's length. The Niger, however, is ahead, and her repeated guns tell us where we are with accuracy. Good fortune follows us, and scarcely has eight o'clock arrived when the massive curtain of fog raises itself gradually from both shores of Trinity Bay, disclosing to us the entrance of heart's content, the Albany making for the harbour, the Margarita Stevenson, surveying the vessel, steaming out to meet us, the prearranged pathway all marked with buoys by Mr. J. H. Kerr, R.N., and a whole fleet of fishing boats fishing at the entrance. We could now plainly see that heart's content, so far as its capabilities permitted, was prepared to welcome us. The British and American flags floated from the church and telegraph station and other buildings. We had dressed ship, fired a salute, and given three cheers, and Captain Comoro of HMS Terrible was soon on board to congratulate us on our success. At nine o'clock ship's time, just as we had cut the cable and made arrangements for the medway to lay the shore end, a message arrived giving us the concluding words of a leader in this morning's times. It is a great work, a glory to our age and nation, and the men who have achieved it deserve to be honoured among the benefactors of their race. Treaty of peace signed between Prussia and Austria. 
It was now time for the chief engineer, Mr. Canning, to make the necessary preparations for splicing on board the Medway. Accompanied by Mr. Gooch, M.P., Mr. Clifford, Mr. Willoughby Smith, and Messrs. Temple and Dean, he went on board the Terrible, and Niger having sent their paddle-box boats and cutters to assist. Shortly afterward, the Great Eastern steamed into the harbor and anchored on the northeast side, and was quickly surrounded by boats laden with visitors. Mr. Cyrus Field had come on shore before the Great Eastern had left the offing, with a view of telegraphing to St. John's to hire a vessel to repair the cable unhappily broke between Cape Ray in Newfoundland and Cape North in Breton Island. Before a couple of hours, the shore end will be landed, and it is impossible to conceive a finer day for effecting this our final operation. Even here, people can scarcely realize the fact that the Atlantic telegraph cable has been laid. Tomorrow, however, hearts content. Footnote C. The little harbor that bears this general name is a sheltered nook where ships may ride at anchor, safe from the storms of the ocean. It is but an inlet from the great arm of the sea known as Trinity Bay, which is sixty or seventy miles long and twenty miles broad. On the beach is a small village of some sixty houses, most of which are the humble dwellings of those hardy men who vex the northern seas with their fisheries. The place was never heard of outside of Newfoundland till 1864, when Mr. Field, sailing up Trinity Bay, in the surveying steamer Margareta Stevenson, Captain Orlebar, R.N., in search of a place for the landing of the ocean cable, fixed upon this secluded spot. The old landing of 1858 was at the Bay of Bull's Arms, at the head of Trinity Bay, twenty miles above. Hart's content was chosen now because its waters are still and deep, so that a cable skirting the north side of the banks of Newfoundland can be brought in deep water almost till it touches the shore. All around the land rises to pine-crested heights, and here the telegraphic fleet, after its memorable voyage, lay in quiet under the shadow of the encircling hills. End footnote. We'll awaken to the fact that it is a highly favored place in the world's esteem, the western landing place of that marvel of electric communication with the eastern hemisphere, which is now happily, and we hope finally, established. This simple record, so modestly termed the diary of the expedition, tells the story of this memorable voyage in a way that needs no embellishment. But if from the ship's deck we transfer ourselves to the shore, we may get a new impression of the closing scene. We can well believe the sensation of wonder and almost of awe on the morning when the ships entered that little harbor of Newfoundland. In England the progress of the expedition was known from day to day, but on this side of the ocean all was uncertainty. Some had gone to heart's content, hoping to witness the arrival of the fleet, but not so many as the year before, for the memory of the last failure was too fresh, and they feared another disappointment. But still a faithful few were there, who kept their daily watch. The correspondents of the American papers report only a long and anxious suspense, till the morning when the first ship was seen in the offing. As they looked toward her, she came nearer, and see... There is another, and another, and now the hall of the Great Eastern loomed up all glorious in the morning sky. They were coming. Instantly all was wild excitement on shore. Boats put off to row toward the fleet. The Albany was the first to round the point and enter the bay. The Terrible was close behind. The Medway stopped an hour or two to join on the heavy shore end, while the Great Eastern, gliding calmly in as if she had done nothing remarkable, dropped her anchor in front of the telegraph house having trailed behind her a chain of two thousand miles to bind the old world to the new. That same afternoon, as soon as the shore end was landed, Captain Anderson and the officers of the fleet went in a body to the little church in heart's content to render thanks for the success of the expedition. A sermon was preached on the next. There shall be no more sea, and all joined in the sublime prayers and thanksgivings of the Church of England. Thus the voyage ended as it began, 
it left the shores of our island with prayers wafted after it as a benediction and now safely landed on the shores of the new world this gallant company like columbus and his companions made it their first thought to render homage to the being who had borne them safely across the deep but though their voyage was ended there was still a work to be done having crossed the atlantic the first thing was to open communication with the cities of the united states and now mr field was extremely mortified to find that there was a large gap in the line this side of the ocean his first question to the superintendent who came out in a boat to meet him was in regard to the cable across the gulf of st lawrence which had been interrupted the year before and it was a bitter pang to hear that it lay still broken so that a message which came from ireland in a moment of time was delayed twenty-four hours in its way to new york of course the public grew impatient and there were many sneers at the want of foresight which had failed to provide against such a contingency and as he was the one chiefly known in connection with the enterprise these reproaches fell upon him he did not tell the public what was the truth that he had anticipated this very trouble long ago and entreated his associates to be prepared for it months before he left for england he urged upon the company in new york the necessity of rebuilding their lines in newfoundland which had been standing over ten years and of repairing the old cable and also laying a new one across the gulf of st lawrence but this would cost a large sum of money and as their faith and purses had been sorely tried by repeated disasters they were not willing to spend more in the uncertainty of the future they wished to see the result of this new expedition before advancing for the capital we do not blame them but only mention the fact to show that mr field had foreseen this very thing and endeavored to guard against it but regrets were idle what could he do to repair the injury is there a steamer he asked to be had in these waters the bloodhound is at st john's telegraph instantly to charter her to go around to the gulf of st lawrence and fish up the old cable and repair it but that may take several weeks is there nothing else that can serve in the meantime to carry dispatches across the gulf there is a little steamer called the dauntless we'll telegraph for her too secure her at all hazards only see that the work is done all this was the work of a few minutes the answers came back quickly and in a day or two came the steamers themselves the arrangement was immediately carried out the dauntless took her place in the gulf where she made her regular trips from port au basque in newfoundland to aspey bay in cape breton keeping up daily communication with the states the bloodhound which had a more difficult task first took on board eleven miles of cable from the great eastern to repair that which was broken the expedition was put in charge of mr a m mckay the indefatigable superintendent of the company in newfoundland who had had the care of their lines for ten years he sailed for aspey bay and made short work of the business dragging the gulf and raising the cable which he found had been broken by an anchor in water seventy fathoms deep a few miles from shore this was spliced out with a portion of the new cable and the whole was as perfect as ever giving a fresh proof that cables well made are likely to be permanent if not indestructible meanwhile owing to this interruption of the cable across the gulf of st lawrence the news of the success of the expedition which reached newfoundland on friday the twenty seventh did not reach new york till the twenty ninth it was early sunday morning before the sabbath bells had rung their call to prayer that the tidings came the first announcement was brief hearts content july twenty seventh we arrived here at nine o'clock this morning all well thank god the cable is laid and is in perfect working order cyrus w field soon followed the dispatch to the associated press giving the details of the voyage and ending with a just tribute to the skill and devotion of all who had contributed to its success said mr field i cannot find words suitable to convey my admiration for the men who have so ably conducted the nautical engineering and electrical departments of this enterprise amidst difficulties which must be seen to be appreciated in fact all on board of the telegraph fleet and all connected with the enterprise have done their best to have the cable made and laid in a perfect condition 
and he who rules the winds and the waves has crowned their united efforts with perfect success. Other dispatches followed in quick succession, giving the latest events of the war in Europe, which startled the public just reading news a fortnight old. All this confirmed the great triumph, and filled every heart with wonder and gratitude on the Sunday morning, as they went again to the little church, and rendered thanks to him who is Lord of the earth and sea. While the Great Eastern was lying in the harbor of heart's content, she was overrun with visitors. The news of her arrival had spread over the island, and from far and near the people flocked to see her. Over the hills they came on foot and on horseback, and in wagons and carts of every description, and from along the shore in boats and fishing smacks, and sloops and schooners. They came from the most remote parts of the island, a distance of three hundred miles, and even from the province of New Brunswick. Several parties made the excursion in steamers from St. John's. The wandering country folk climbed up the sides of the ship and wandered for hours through its spacious rooms and long passages. All were welcomed with hearty sailor courtesy. As soon as communication was open with New York and other cities, congratulations poured in from every quarter. Friendly messages were exchanged, as eight years before, between the Sovereign of England and the head of the Great Republic. The President also, and Mr. Seward, Secretary of State, sent their congratulations to Mr. Field, greetings that were repeated from the most distant states. Among others was a message from San Francisco, which was put into its hand almost at the same moment with one from M. de Lesseps, dated at Alexandria in Egypt. What a meeting and mingling of voices was this, when a winged salutation, flying over the tops of the Rocky Mountains, reached the same ear with a message which had been whispered along the Mediterranean and under the Atlantic. When the farthest east touched the farthest west, the most ancient of kingdoms answering to the newborn empire of the Pacific. End of chapter 16 Recorded by Alexi Talander, www.bookbanter.net.